Section 20 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 20. In one of his little memorandum books, I find the following hints for his intended review or literary journal. The annals of literature, foreign as well as domestic, imitate Le Clerc, Bale, Barbaric, infelicity of journals in England, works of the learned, we cannot take in all, sometimes copy from foreign journalists, always tell. To Dr. Birch, March twenty ninth, 1755. Sir, I have sent some parts of my dictionary, such as were at hand, for your inspection. The favor which I beg is, that if you do not like them, you will say nothing. I am, sir, your most affectionate, humble servant, Sam Johnson. To Mr. Samuel Johnson, Norfolk Street, April twenty-third, 1755. Sir, the part of your dictionary which you have favored me with the sight of has given me such an idea of the whole, that I most sincerely congratulate the public upon the acquisition of a work long wanted, and now executed with an industry, accuracy, and judgment equal to the importance of the subject. You might perhaps have chosen one in which your genius would have appeared to more advantage, but you could not have fixed upon any other in which your labors would have done such substantial service to the present age and to posterity. I am glad that your health has supported the application necessary to the performance of so vast a task, and can undertake to promise you as one, though perhaps the only reward of it, the approbation and thanks of every well-wisher to the honor of the English language. I am, with the greatest regard, sir, your most faithful and most affectionate humble servant, Theodore Birch. Mr. Charles Burney, who has since distinguished himself so much in the science of music, and obtained a doctor's degree from the University of Oxford, had been driven from the capital by bad health, and was now visiting at Lynn Regis in Norfolk. He had been so much delighted with Johnson's Rambler and the plan of his dictionary, that when the great work was announced in the newspapers as nearly finished, he wrote to Dr. Johnson, begging to be informed when and in what matter his dictionary would be published, entreating if it should be by subscription, or he should have any books at his own disposal to be favored with six copies for himself and friends. In answer to this application, Dr. Johnson wrote the following letter of which to use Dr. Burney's own words, if it be remembered that it was written to an obscure young man, who at this time had not much distinguished himself even in his own profession, but whose name could never have reached the author of the Rambler, the politeness and urbanity may be opposed to some of the stories which have lately circulated of Dr. Johnson's natural rudeness and ferocity. To Mr. Berkney in Lynn Regis, Norfolk. Sir, if you imagine that by delaying my answer I intended to show any neglect of the notice with which you have favoured me, you will neither think justly of yourself nor of me. Your civilities were offered with too much elegance not to engage attention, and I have too much pleasure in pleasing men like you not to feel very sensibly the distinction which you have bestowed upon me. Few consequence of my endeavours to please or to benefit mankind have delighted me more than your friendship thus voluntarily offered which now I have it I hope to keep, because I hope to continue to deserve it. I have no dictionaries to dispose of for myself, 
but shall be glad to have you direct your friends to Mr. Dodsley, because it was by his recommendation that I was employed in the work. When you have leisure to think upon me, let me be favoured with another letter, and another yet when you have looked into my dictionary. If you find faults, I shall endeavour to mend them. If you find none, I shall think you blinded by kind partiality. But to have made you partial in his favour will very much gratify the ambition of, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson, Cough Square, Fleet Street, April 8, 1755. Mr. Andrew Miller, bookseller in the Strand, took the principal charge of conducting the publication of Johnson's Dictionary, and as the patience of the proprietors was repeatedly tried and almost exhausted, by their expecting that the work would be completed within the time which Johnson had sanguinely supposed, the learned author was often goaded to dispatch, more especially as he had received all the copy-money, by different drafts, a considerable time before he had finished his task. When the messenger who carried the last sheet to Miller returned, Johnson asked him, "'Well, what did he say?' "'Sir,' answered the messenger, he said, "'Thank God I have done with him.' "'I am glad,' replied Johnson with a smile, "'that he thanks God for anything.' It is remarkable that those with whom Johnson chiefly contracted for his literary labours were Scotchmen, Mr. Miller and Mr. Strahan. Miller, though himself no great judge of literature, had good sense enough to have for his friends very able men to give them their opinion and advice in the purchase of copyright, the consequence of which was his acquiring a large fortune with great liberality. I respect Miller, sir, he has raised the price of literature. The same praise may be justly given to Pancock, the eminent bookseller of Paris. Mr. Strahan's liberality, judgment, and success are well known. To Bennett Langton, Esquire, at Langton near Spilsby, Lincolnshire. Sir, it has been long observed that men do not suspect faults which they do not commit. Your own elegance of manners and punctuality of complaisance did not suffer you to impute to me that negligence of which I was guilty and which I have not since atoned. I received both your letters, and received them with pleasure proportionate to the esteem which so short an acquaintance strongly impressed, and which I hope to confirm by nearer knowledge, though I am afraid that gratification will be for a time withheld. I have indeed published my book, of which I beg to know your father's judgment and yours, and I have now stayed long enough to watch its progress into the world. It has, you see, no patrons, and I think it has yet no opponents, except the critics of the coffee-house, whose outcries are soon dispersed into the air, and are thought on no more. From this, therefore, I am at liberty, and think of taking the opportunity of this interval to make an excursion, and why not, then, into Lincolnshire? Or, to mention a stronger attraction, why not to dear Mr. Langton? I will give the true reason, which I know you will approve. I have a mother more than eighty years old, who has counted the days to the publication of my book, in hopes of seeing me, and to her, if I can disengage myself here, I resolve to go. As I know, dear sir, that to delay my visit for a reason like this will not deprive me of your esteem, I beg it may not lessen your kindness. I have very seldom received an offer of friendship which I so earnestly desire to cultivate and mature. I shall rejoice to hear from you till I can see you, and will see you as soon as I can, for when the duty that calls me to Litchfield is discharged, my inclination will carry me to Langton. 
I shall delight to hear the ocean roar, or see the stars twinkle in the company of men to whom nature does not spread her volumes, or utter her voice in vain. Do not, dear sir, make the slowness of this letter a precedent for delay, or imagine that I approve the incivility that I have committed, for I have known you enough to love you, and sincerely to wish a further knowledge, and I assure you once more that to live in a house that contains such a father and such a son will be accounted a very uncommon degree of pleasure. By, dear sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson, May 6, 1755. To the Reverend Dr. Thomas Wharton. Dear Sir, I am grieved that you should think me capable of neglecting your letters, and beg you will never admit any such suspicion again. I purpose to come down next week, if you shall be there, or any other week, that shall be more agreeable to you. Therefore, let me know. I can stay this visit but a week, but intend to make preparations for a longer stay next time, being resolved not to lose sight of the university. How goes Apollonius? Don't let him be forgotten. Some things of this kind must be done to keep us up. Pay my compliments to Mr. Wise and all my other friends. I think to come to Kettle Hall. I am, sir, your most affectionate, etc., Sam Johnson. London, May 13, 1755. To the same. Dear sir, it is strange how many things will happen to intercept every pleasure, though it be only that of two friends meeting together. I have promised myself every day to inform you when you might expect me at Oxford, and have not been able to fix a time. The time, however, is, I think, at last come, and I promise myself to repose in Kettle Hall one of the first nights of the next week. I am afraid my stay with you cannot be long, but what is the inference? We must endeavour to make it cheerful. I wish your brother could meet us, that we might go and drink tea with Mr. Wise in a body. I hope he will be at Oxford or at his nest of British and Saxon antiquities. I shall expect to see Spencer finished, and many other things begun. Dodsley is gone to visit the Dutch. The dictionary sells well. The rest of the world goes on as it did. Dear Sir, your most affectionate, and etc., Sam Johnson. London, June 10, 1755. To the same, Dear Sir. To talk of coming to you, and not yet to come, has an air of trifling which I would not willingly have among you and which I believe you will not willingly impute to me, when I have told you that since my promise two of our partners are dead, and I was solicited to suspend my excursion till we could recover from our confusion. I have not laid aside my purpose, for every day makes me more impatient of staying from you. But death, you know, hears not supplications, nor pays any regard to the convenience of mortals. I hope now to see you next week, but next week is but another name for to-morrow, which has been noted for promising and deceiving. I am, etc., Sam Johnson, London, June 24, 1755. To the same. Dear Sir, I told you that among the manuscripts are some things of Sir Thomas More. I beg you to pass an hour in looking on them, and procure a transcript of the ten or twenty first lines of each, to be compared with what I have, that I may know whether they are yet published. The manuscripts are these. Catalogue of Bodleian Manuscripts, page 122, F3, Sir Thomas More. 1. Fall of Angels. 2. Creation and Fall of Mankind. 3. Determination of the Trinity for the Rescue of Mankind. 4. Five Lectures of Our Saviour's Passion. 5. Of the Institution of the Sacrament, Three Lectures. 6. How to Receive the Blessed Body of Our Lord Sacramentally. 7. Neomenia, the New Moon. 8. De Tristitia, 
tedio, pavore e oratione, Christi, ante, captionem aegis. Catalogue, page 154. Life of Sir Thomas More. Question. Whether Roper's... Page 363. De resignation magni sigli in magnus regis per d tomum morum. Page 364. Mori defensio Maurice. If you procure the young gentleman in the library to write out what you think fit to be written, I will send to Mr. Prince, the bookseller, to pay him what you shall think proper. Be pleased to make my compliments to Mr. Wise and all my friends. I am, sir, your affectionate and etc., Sam Johnson. London, August 7, 1755. The dictionary, with the grammar and history of the English language, being now at length published, in two volumes folio, the world contemplated with wonder so stupendous a work achieved by one man, while other centuries had thought such undertakings fit only for whole academies. Vast as his powers were, I cannot but think that his imagination deceived him, when he supposed that by constant application he might have performed the task in three years. Let the preface be attentively perused, in which is given, in a clear, strong, and glowing style, a comprehensive, yet particular view of what he had done, and it will be evident that the time he employed upon it was comparatively short. I am unwilling to swell my book with long quotations from what is in everybody's hands, and I believe there are few prose compositions in the English language that are read with more delight, or are more impressed upon the memory, than that preliminary discourse. One of its excellencies has always struck me with peculiar admiration, I mean the perspicuity with which he has expressed abstract scientific notions. As an instance of this, I shall quote the following sentence, quote, When the radical idea branches out into parallel ramifications, how can a consecutive series be formed of senses in their own nature collateral? We have here an example of what has been often said, and I believe with justice that there is for every thought a certain nice adaptation of words, which none other could equal, and which, when a man has been so fortunate as to hit, as he has attained, in that particular case, the perfection of language. The extensive reading which was absolutely necessary for the accumulation of authorities, and which alone may account for Johnson's retentive mind being enriched with a very large and various store of knowledge and imagery, must have occupied several years. The preface furnishes an eminent instance of a double talent, of which Johnson was fully conscious. Sir Joshua Reynolds heard him say, There are two things which I am confident I can do very well. One is an introduction to any literary work, stating what it is to contain, and how it should be executed in the most perfect manner. The other is a conclusion, showing from various causes why the execution has not been equal to what the author promised to himself and to the public. How should puny scribblers be abashed and disappointed, when they find him displaying a perfect theory of lexicographical excellence, yet at the same time candidly and modestly allowing that he had not satisfied his own expectations? Here was a fair occasion for the exercise of Johnson's modesty, when he was called upon to compare his own arduous performance, not with those of other individuals, in which case his inflexible regard to truth would have been violated, had he affected diffidence, but with speculative perfection, as he, who can outstrip all his competitors in the race, may yet be sensible of his deficiency when he runs against time. Well might he say that the English dictionary was written with little assistance of the learned, 
for he told me that the only aid which he received was a paper containing twenty etymologies, sent to him by a person then unknown, who he was afterwards informed was Dr. Pierce, Bishop of Rochester. The etymologies, though they exhibit learning and judgment, are not, I think, entitled to the first praise among the various parts of his immense work. The definitions have always appeared to me such astonishing proofs of acuteness and intellect and precision of language, as indicated a genius of the highest rank. This it is which marks the superior excellence of Johnson's dictionary over others equally or even more voluminous and must have made it a work of much greater mental labor than mere lexicons, or word-books, as the Dutch call them. They who will make the experiment of trying how they can define a few words of whatever nature, will soon be satisfied of the unquestionable justice of this observation, which I can assure my readers is founded upon much study, and upon communication with more minds than my own. A few of his definitions must be admitted to be erroneous. Thus, windward and leeward, though directly of opposite meaning, are defined identically the same way, as to which inconsiderable specks it is enough to observe, that his preface announces that he was aware there might be many such mistakes in so immense a work, nor was he at all disconcerted when an instance was pointed out to him. A lady once asked him how he came to define pastern the knee of a horse, Instead of making an elaborate defense, as she expected, he at once answered, Ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. His definition of network has been often quoted with sportive malignity, as obscuring a thing in itself very plain. But to these frivolous censures no other answer is necessary than that which we are furnished by his own preface. To explain requires the use of terms less abstruse than that which is to be explained, and such terms cannot always be found. For as nothing can be proved but by supposing something intuitively known, and evident without proof, so nothing can be defined but by the use of words too plain to admit of definition. Sometimes easier words are changed into harder, as burial into sepulchre, or interment, dry into desiccative, or dryness into siccity, or aridity, fit into paroxysm, for the easiest word, whatever it be, can never be translated into one more easy. His introducing his own opinions, and even prejudices, under general definitions of words, while at the same time the original meaning of the words is not explained, as his Tory, Whig, Pension, Oates, Excise, and a few more, cannot be fully defended, and must be placed to the account of capricious and humorous indulgence. Note. He thus defines excise, a hateful tax levied upon commodities, and adjudged not by the common judges of property, but wretches hired by those to whom excise is paid. The commissioners of excise, being offended by this severe reflection, consulted Mr. Murray, then Attorney-General, to know whether redress could be legally obtained. I wish to have procured for my readers a copy of the opinion which he gave, and which may now be justly considered as history, but the mysterious secrecy of office, it seems, would not permit it. I am, however, informed by very good authority that its import was that the passage might be considered as actionable, but that it would be more prudent in the board not to prosecute. Johnson never made the smallest alteration in this passage. 
we find he still retained his early prejudice against excise for in the idler number sixty five there is the following very extraordinary paragraph the authenticity of clarendon's history though printed with the sanction of one of the first universities of the world had not an unexpected manuscript been happily discovered would with the help of factious credulity have been brought into question by the two lowest of all human beings a scribbler for a party and a commissioner of excise the persons to whom he alludes were mr john oldmixon and george duckett esq End of note. talking to me upon this subject when we were at ashbourne in seventeen seventy seven he mentioned a still stronger instance of the predominance of his private feelings in the composition of this work than any now to be found in it you know sir lord gower forsook the old jacobite interest when i came to the word renegado after telling that it meant one who deserts to the enemy a revolter i added sometimes we say a gower thus it went to the press but the printer had more wit than i and struck it out let it however be remembered that this indulgence does not display itself only in sarcasm toward others but sometimes in playful allusion to the notions commonly entertained of his own laborious task thus grub street the name of a street in london much inhabited by writers of small histories dictionaries and temporary poems whence any mean production is called grub street lexographer a writer of dictionaries a harmless drudge at the time when he was concluding his very eloquent preface johnson's mind appears to have been in such a state of depression that we cannot contemplate without wonder the vigorous and splendid thoughts which so highly distinguished that performance i says he may surely be contented without the praise of perfection which if i could obtain in this gloom of solitude what would it avail me i have protracted my work till most of those whom i wish to please have sunk into the grave and success and miscarriage are empty sounds i therefore dismiss it with frigid tranquillity having little to fear or hope from censure or from praise that this indifference was rather temporary than an habitual feeling appears i think from his letters to mr wharton and however he may have been affected for the moment certain it is that the honours which his great work procured him both at home and abroad were very grateful to him his friend the earl of cork and orrery being at florence presented it to the academia della crusca the academy sent johnson their vocabulario and the french academy sent him their dictionnaire which mr langton had the pleasure to convey to him it must undoubtedly seem strange that the conclusion of his preface should be expressed in terms so desponding when it is considered that the author was then only in his forty-sixth year but we must ascribe its gloom to that miserable dejection of spirits to which he was constitutionally subject and which was aggravated by the death of his wife two years before i have heard it ingeniously observed by a lady of rank and elegance that his melancholy was then at its meridian it pleased god to grant him almost thirty years of life after this time and once when he was in a placid frame of mind he was obliged to own to me that he had enjoyed happier days and had many more friends since that gloomy hour than before it is a sad saying that most of those whom he wished to please had sunk into the grave and his case at forty-five was singularly unhappy unless the circle of his friends was very narrow 
I have often thought that as longevity is generally desired, and I believe generally expected, it would be wise to be continually adding to the number of our friends, that the loss of some may be supplied by others. Friendship, the wine of life, should, like a well-stocked cellar, be thus continually renewed, and it is consolatory to think that although we can seldom add what will equal the generous first growths of our youth, yet friendship becomes insensibly old in much less time than is commonly imagined, and not many years are required to make it very mellow and pleasant. Warmth will, no doubt, make a considerable difference. Men of affectionate temper and bright fancy will coalesce a great deal sooner than those who are cold and dull. End of section 20